WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Lazowitz. And this week, our guest was a contributor to the recent Marvel Voices Indigenous Voices anthology and recently published her debut novel, Alatsue, uh, Dr. Darcy Little Badger. Welcome, Darcy. Hello. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Yes. Um, so let's 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 start with the question we ask all our first time guests. Uh, what what comics do you remember reading when you first got into them? Uh, so the the earliest comics I can remember were Archie comics, actually, uh, because when I was a kid, they'd sell these double digests or digests at the grocery store, and it was the kind of thing where whenever possible, I'd get my parents to buy one for me, and then I ended up having hundreds of, of double digests and digests of Archie and Jughead and Betty and Veronica, and I, I sold them to help pay for college, and now every day I think back on that collection, I was like, I wish I still had it with me. Uh, but yeah, from there, I, I did get into uh, both DC and Marvel. But when I think back of really the comics that I read the most and the earliest as a young reader, it had to be Spider-Man, uh, then X-Men, and then uh, I guess those were the two biggest ones. Uh, I also did really like Batman. <laughs> now, when you say that you sold comics to help pay for college, I I, I started reading in the mid '90s, so I thought that was a myth. <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't help much, I gotta say. But I had a very good financial aid package, um, so uh, I still now thinking back, I, I wish I didn't. But you know, at the time, you're like, oh, I just really need this hundred bucks because the textbooks were so expensive. <laughs> but it was back when eBay was. I guess eBay still a, still a thing, but it, it was a lot bigger back then. I, I guess. Mm-hmm. You can go, uh, Archie, the past couple of years has been doing these giant thousand page books that are just basically like half a dozen or however many of those double digests sort of jammed together. It's that size. And they're like 15 bucks for a a thousand pages. You should should, should look for them. They're a lot of fun. Oh, I know what my next birthday present is going to (laughs) be. Just all of those. Yeah, it, it, it's funny. It, you know, in in our late teens, we we you know we're we're encouraged or we're told or we believe we're supposed to put away childish things. But then as soon as we get some disposable income, you know, yes. <laughs> it's time to buy them back. Yes, with extra glossy covers and Ooh. back matter. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. But um, so just a couple months ago, uh. Marvel published the Indigenous Voices uh, anthology, which I mentioned. You got to write a Danny Moonstar story, uh, short for it, drawn by Kyle Charles. Uh, how did that opportunity come about? Oh, uh, so prior to this, I'd written in comics before. I, I did an eight-issue run as a co-writer on uh, Strangelands, which is part of the, the H1 uh, Humanoids universe. Um, and my, I, co- I co-wrote that one with, with Mags Visaggio. And... You know, I, I've done some short work, uh, like 10-page comics uh, with things like Moonshot, the Indigenous Comics Collection. Uh, but this was my first chance to actually work with Marvel. And at first, it was, like, very mysterious because before you sign an NDA, you really can't talk much about the details of the project. Um, but my agent reached out to me and said, well, I've been contacted with this potential opportunity. Would you like to talk to the editor? Uh, and absolutely, I, I wanted to talk to the editor. So we had a phone call. And I think prior to that, I, I knew a little bit about what it was going to be like, it would be a chance for me to write a very short um, 
comic story uh, using a, a hero, a native hero um, from Marvel. I didn't know which one they wanted me to write, but I, I, I was like, I had to write Danny <laughs> because if I just think about which native hero has really like resonated with me just growing up as a comic fan, Danny is the one. Um, even when I was a teenager, I actually went back because uh, I was born after her first appearance on the New Mutants in the, in the 80s. I mean, I was born in the late 80s. But even as a teenager, I went back and somehow found those early like New Mutant comics. So, so I was very familiar with her as a character. Uh, so, so I wrote like this list of reasons why Danny is a very cool like mutant and then she should have her own story and I'd love to write her and, and I, I didn't really even need to do much convincing uh, there. Editor Sarah was like, yeah, sure, you could, you could, you could do this. Um, so that, that was when I, I realized that I'd have a chance to help contribute to, you know, one of the X-Men, uh, a character who growing up I really loved and uh, it, it it, on one hand, is a, it feels almost like a huge responsibility because I want to do right by Danny. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, it really is a dream, one that I, I couldn't turn down just to have a chance to contribute to this universe that's enriched me so much growing up. Um, and from there, I was, I was introduced uh, to Kyle Charles's work. Uh, and just, you know, even before he started on the layouts, I saw some of his previous work. And just as an artist, he is phenomenal. And especially the work he did with this 10 page like short with Danny, it's, it's almost like this, this callback to just those classic new mutants that I read growing up, but that he has so much like, um, almost like unique energy that he, he puts into his art. So it, it was so cool to be able to collaborate with him on this. Um, and I still can't believe that I, that I had a chance to do this, honestly, especially with him. I like to look at, at, at uh, in the comic, I, I, there's these, basically these monsters that appear um, because there's a, a mutant that is introduced whose power is to open like this dimension and these kind of cosmic horror monsters pop out. And basically, uh, Cal Charles invented a lot of those characteristics of those monsters because I told him, you know, this should be like a really scary hell, hell bird looking thing, but you, you just put your imagination into what this looks like. Or at one point, uh, Danny is riding on a monster. And I told, I told him like, you know, you could use, you, I, I trust you to invent this really cool looking monster, as long as it's something that she could ride on and is both, you know, scary, but also kind of cute. <laughs> so that, that was really cool to see the finished product. Um, do you have, do you have a favorite Danny story? Uh, apart from the one you just wrote, of course. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking back cause, uh, that, that's a question I'm asked and, and she's had such a, a long history. It's hard to decide. There's a couple of things that come. Well, actually I should say, I really like her in the new mutants that's happening now, like the 2020, mm. 2019 version. Um, so that's something that I'm going to continue reading. So that's my current like love. Um, but when I think back, uh, one thing, she, she, there was a War of the Realms Uncanny X-Men kind of uh, little adventure that she was a part of. And one thing I really liked about that is there, there's this scene at the end where her, her death powers as a Valkyrie kind of come into a play in a very emotionally poignant way. Mm -hmm. I appreciated that, um, but also just her original kind of arc is learning how to almost become one of this team of new mutants because she starts out feeling almost I would say very resistant to being part of this boarding school um, for good reason I think but then over the course of that just like go you know 
uh, hanging out with with the fellow new mutants, but also like fighting for their lives uh, together. Um, she kind of comes to not only realize that she is part of this team, but also that she could almost pay it forward. And then eventually she does become a teacher to other mutants. So I think that's really cool. Just like the classic issues when she's going through this, this character growth. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I mentioned, you know, I started reading X-Men in, in 1993. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's this period where the books are just starting to undo like two or so years of 1980s erasure. You know, because that, that, that whole like Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee period. So my first experience with Danny was when she was undercover in the uh, new Mutant Liberation Front. Yes. Uh, <laughs> where she's undercover, but going by Moonstar, which is like. Yes, where it's incredibly obvious it's her, but they make it seem like it's a mystery. Yes. Uh -huh. <laughs> I think I had a conversation about how terrible her undercover was on another podcast uh, recently. Um, but yeah, I, I know that, that, that Danny. <laughs> But the um, point is, you know, I missed the, the, the prior decade where mm -hmm. she was in good stories. Uh, and I actually, I didn't get to read Demon Bear Saga until oh. this summer. And I mean, of, of course, it's, it's very good. <laughs> I have to say, uh, it's okay for me to talk about like, you know, spoilery things, right? About Demon Bear or should I sure. hold off? Okay, I just <laughs> wanted to say. Spoilers for a 35-year-old story. Yeah, really, really, <laughs> really ought to be reading that. <laughs> um, but yeah, one thing that I, I enjoyed about that is like in the end, her parents come back, which is almost like a reversal of this classic, like tragic Indian story where, where you lose everyone. Instead, she was able to regain the support from her parents who she thought she lost. Um, so for me, that, that, it, that made a big impact. Like I was, I was a young reader, you know, I love my parents and it was just really cool to see a native character finally have a non-tragic ending. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, in in the story in the story that you wrote, uh, I really dug the the dynamic between Danny and Rain. Uh, you know, normally in in New Mutants, you know, it's it's those two, and then it's like five to seven other characters. <laughs> so, you know, so they can get lost in all that. Anybody, yes. any of them can. Um, but here, you get to focus on the rapport that they've had for decades and how they play off each other. And, you know, as this sort of like, you know, psyops tracker duo uh, yeah. to to a certain extent. I had read in a previous interview that, you know, you'd agonized a little bit over, you know, <laughs> what other character you wanted to include in the story with with. Dan. Yeah, that 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 was something I wanted see when you're when you're writing a 10 page story, unfortunately, you don't have a lot of room to work with. So even though. I, I really wish that I could have like brought in more characters because like I love them all. I realized that if I was going to bring another mutant into the story, which which is important because that gives Danny someone to kind of banter off of and kind of uh, shows this relationship she has with her team, which I, I do think that you know the X Men comics a lot of these stories really emphasize that that teamwork or that those connectiveness between different people. So I thought it would be important to have at least one other uh, mutant there. But the question is who, because she actually does have connections with a lot of different people. Uh, but Rain's connection with Danny, like, has always been particularly strong uh, because Danny has this kind of 
animal empathy, a, a way to connect with animals. And Rain, of course, turns into this wolf form. So like early on, they had this connection where went Rain in her wolf form and Danny, you know, with, with her empathy, were able to connect with each other. Uh, and I, I hear even in, in the New Mutants movie, which I have not seen, but I hear they have a romantic relationship. <laughs> um, I, I, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is that, is that true? Or? I, it's what I understand. Actually, no okay. one has seen the movie. No, yeah, I, we, I we were going to ask if you had, so you've now <laughs> cut us off the pass on that. No, I, I, I have not seen, seen the movie. Um, I, I, I considered. not going to theaters, by the way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but, 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 like, there, there's undeniably, like, whether you interpret them as, like, very strong platonic friends or even romantic friends um, their connection is very strong like throughout the history of Danny and Rain uh, so I thought that it would be cool to kind of emphasize that in the story and also Rain's powers uh, especially like her ability to have these heightened senses were useful in this particular story where they have to track down this young mutant who essentially has fled into the desert now uh at the, at the time, did you have to, uh, you know, did you have to get brought up to the speed on the whole, like, Krakoa thing, or, or you know, how, how caught up were you, you know? Yes, I, so I did, um, I was familiar with Krakoa, uh, but I binge read pretty much all of the, everything that has come out that's related to that. Uh, I did that as, actually over the course of, like, three days, so it was, oh, wow. it was a lot of X-Men, but, you know, if you enjoy reading them, it's really not that big of a sacrifice. So I did have fun doing that. But uh, yeah, basically my editor sent me just everything I would need to get up to speed on Krakoa. Because again, that was a theme that I thought would be really cool to explore in this Danny Moonstore story. Uh, because if you are a citizen of this like mutant nation, um, but also a Cheyenne, you know, woman, and also, you know, how can you be multiple things at once? And that's something that throughout her history, Danny has both struggled with. And then I think she's reached a point where she's almost reconciled herself as a person who has many facets. Um, so that, that was, it, it was fun. Uh, I, I'm really excited to see where, where she's going in the near future. <laughs> I, I, you have once again jumped to, you've jumped my next question is that was about that whole the passage where she talks to the young mutant about the the duality of being both Cheyenne and Krakoan so yes. good on you <laughs> yeah. and that's a, a big thing with Danny and I think it goes all the way back to when she first uh, became a Valkyrie uh, because another of my favorite issues involving Danny is uh, after she's a Valkyrie, there's this period where she returns home on the res and she's actually thinking to herself as she's riding on her flying horse, Brightwind, she's thinking like, what am I really? Am I a Valkyrie? Uh, am I, uh, you know, a Cheyenne person? What, what am I? Can I be both? Uh, so it is something that when she was younger, I think gave her a lot of conflict as a character, but it, it's also something that resonates, I think, with a lot of Native people. Uh, because like me, I'm an enrolled member of the Lipan Apache tribe of Texas, but I'm also a US citizen. Uh, and sometimes we're treated almost like we have to have an allegiance to just, you know, one part of ourselves when really like all people, Native people are multiple things. Um, and adding Krakoa in there adds like an, an another element um, because something that this story explores is like how would Krakoa interact with 
uh, native nations as these semi-sovereign entities within the United States. Like they could potentially have like political connections to different native native nations. Uh, and of course, like native nations, they're not all one monolith. So potentially Krakoa could have interactions with like the Yavapai Apache. Um, but would they then have the similar interactions with uh, Cheyenne, like Danny? So it's just a, a whole bunch of like complexity that would be really cool to explore. Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, just, just thinking about uh, Danny, uh, you know, I, I think more than most, she's been a very good, since her creation, she's been a good example of, of sort of intersectionality <laughs> in the mutant metaphor, you know, because I, 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 I keep going back to that panel in the, the mutants graphic novel at the very end where the team shows up in their uniforms for the first time and she's got the belt on and Charles yes. gives her a hard time for it. And she's like, uh, no, because I'm not erasing my own, you know, I want to be part of this team, but I'm not erasing my own, uh, you know, identity and heritage to do it. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna back off on this one. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, that's a good choice. Charles. <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a, uh, in my opinion, it's one of my favorite, like Danny panels ever, probably. It's something that I always go back to when people ask me what's a defining uh, moment for her character, because it does show that she is an individual and she's not made to sacrifice her culture in order to belong to like her, the new mutants or in order to essentially be part of this boarding school and then, you know, go on to uh, teach at the boarding school. <laughs> and that's, yeah, it, you can be both. You don't have to choose. <laughs> um, looking at the, um, the book opens with this uh, double page spread of of marvel's various uh, indigenous characters and it occurs to me that a lot of them are if not mutants then mutant adjacent so you get a lot of x-men characters um a lot of alpha flight characters a lot of characters created by chris claremont um <laughs> I, you know do do you find in your own you know reading uh you know that that the mutant metaphor does intersect well with with various uh, indigenous cultures because as as you mentioned it's it's not monolithic. Yeah, and I, I do I have noticed that too, especially during that point where I was trying to think who I'd want to write during this project. I realized that like when I was trying to think of native characters, most of them were from the X Men, and at the time I was like, is that just because I read? the X-Men mostly, or is it just because there's a disproportionate number? And I think you're, you're right that there is. Uh, and it does kind of like play into, I guess the X-Men are, are a really good way to show how different types of minority groups might potentially be oppressed by, a, you know, larger bulk of society. And like, uh, considering what happened during colonization, uh, Native peoples very much fall into that category. Um, and like, it, it's also something where I wonder if there will be exploration on how the way that mutants are treated by different native nations might vary. Like, are there some places where they're more accepted than others historically? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of potential to expand upon that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Considering you're you're already plenty busy as as a novelist and as a scientist, um, yeah, uh, the whole resume. Um, are, are are comics something that you're looking to, you know to continue doing or to do more of? 
Yeah, and um, there, there are things, unfortunately, I can't talk much about right now. <laughs> but I do want to say that if all goes according to plan, I, I would like to remain, like, at least keeping a toe within comics. Uh, and, and it is because, you know, growing up, I read both novels, but I was also, like, a huge comic fan. And it's really just two different ways to... Uh, for me to create stories. Uh, comics, of course, are a lot more visual and I really love that collaborative aspect. Mm -hmm. um, so it would be a shame to just, you know, put aside that, that passion uh, in, in order to pursue just novel writing. But on the other hand, I also love writing novels. Um, it, it does help that I am now able to be a full-time writer. Um, not sure if I'd be able to juggle both graphic novel slash comic writing and novel writing and writing short stories for like the anthologies that have solicited me and, you know, doing all that as well as being a scientific editor, which is my career, you know, prior to this year, uh, because we were editing like 40,000 words a week uh, <laughs> and combine that with trying to write <laughs> every day. It was just, it, it was uh, unsustainable. Um, but yes, definitely. Uh, I do think that in the near future, <laughs> you, you will hopefully see more comics written by me. <laughs> that, that's all I can say at the moment. <laughs> we are well familiar with the rule of the NDA. Yes, oh, the NDA. <laughs> always have to be. I always like take it like overly serious, like because I'm so afraid of accidentally like breaking the NDA. I'm like, I can't even tell my dog about this. I tell her everything. I can't tell her about this. <laughs> and then that's why you should have a cat. The oh. don't talk to anyone. <laughs> they just look at you and wander away. <laughs> we need a new foster kitten. <laughs> it's uh as my my fiance is a veterinarian and was just talking about how the way that they were able to keep track of the season being winter is that there's there's very few kittens at at the practice. It's just not kitten season. I guess not many are born during the winter time. Hmm. But yeah, as soon as it's kitten season, maybe we'll pick up a foster. We usually get the kind uh, the kind of kitten that needs a little bit more help, you know, just medically until it's ready to be adopted. Um, and so far, uh, it's it's so cool. Like uh, our first foster kitten who needed that help was named Fairy Tail, and she started out in very bad shape. But, you know, over the course of being nurtured, she got strong. And another writer actually hooked us up with a librarian who was looking to adopt a cat. So <laughs> we got this little kitten adopted. It's, she's so happy now. I like to follow her on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so you did mention uh, that your, your kind of first longer form comic project was Strangelands yes. with Mag Zosagio, um through Humanoids and H1. Uh, how did that come about? That I, uh, Carlos B. McNeil actually was the person who reached out to me uh, inquiring if I'd be interested in this. Uh, and before then, I'd really only done a web comic and a few short uh, comics, like I said, for Native Realities, the Dear Women Anthology, and uh, Moonshot, the Indigenous Comics Collection. So really, they, they gave me my first shot at this long project. Um, that's another reason why I'm grateful for having a co-writer because that experience kind of showed me the ropes on how to not only format, you know, comics in in a very like easy to easy to read script format, but also how to work quickly and under deadlines. Um, so I, I do credit that with with a lot of, of the things that I learned as as a new comic writer, and and it prepared me to do this short. Uh, story about Danny Moonstar for for Marvel uh, under a, a 
pretty quick deadline. It wasn't that bad because it was only 10 pages, but you know, you. (laughs) (laughs) What was, how was like, I guess, how long was sort of the, the window on that? Because I'm, I'm trying to remember now, of course, all yes. the way back to like 2018, 2019, when this stuff was like still cooking and hadn't released yes. yet. You know, I, I was, I, you know, do it, do it, do it, my Googling uh, as I was, <laughs> as we were preparing for this interview. And it look, it looks like the book went through a few different artists before it settled on on um, Vincenzo uh, and uh, yeah. Guillermo Sana, correct? Yes. And um, that might have, this is something where I don't know much about because a mm-hmm. lot of the artists stuff happened you know on the editor's side of things but I do know that that was one it it was it was one thing that made this difficult um, because there were so many artist changes so uh, Vincenzo really (laughs) saved the day I've got to say they brought him in very last moment and he worked under an extremely tight deadline Um, and I don't know how he did it but he did a phenomenal job Um, and <laughs> that, that's something that I don't think is common um, for comics. Uh, so thanks to Vincenzo. There, there were a lot of, there were a lot of hands involved in yeah. the whole H online when it launched. Yeah. Um, you know, there were writers, editors, there were, there were people who were being referred to as architects. Uh, <laughs> you know, when, when you came onto Strangelands, how much of it was like they pitched this information yes. to you and how much of it was like blanks that you got to fill in? Yeah, uh, we were given just pretty much this bare bones outline of the characters, like what we were given just to start of for Adam and Alakshi, the two main characters, was that they should be connected through their powers, um, and that Adam and Alakshi should both be dancers, ballroom dancers, um, and that the story could should kind of focus on them being pursued by this this very kind of um, single-minded, like, uh, super agent figure uh, named Hardman. Um, From there, we developed together, me and Mags developed what the individual uh, stories would be. We we wanted each of them to have kind of like this four-issue arc. Uh, So it it was, it was a, there was a lot of room really to develop this using our own imagination. But of course we had to check in with our editors, you know, frequently to, to make sure that everything fit in with these other series that were ongoing and that were happening in the same universe and were connected to um, Adam and Lakshi's adventures. Uh, I think it was, it was pitched actually to us as kind of like this world spanning, like romantic slash superhero, what are they called? Romantic comedies, you know, with action. Uh, (laughs) uh, But we were even able to kind of elaborate on their powers. Like um, it was something that Mags and I wanted to do is that when they did touch each other or when they were too far apart, it wouldn't just be like this big explosion, like a bomb. We wanted there to be kind of some cosmic strangeness, like the physics of the world itself kind of shifting. So you really can't predict what would happen uh, when they, when they touched each other. Uh, But yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty cool um, too, because working with Danny Moonstar, she's been so like well-established over Mm -hmm. decades um, that I was really working within this extremely detailed history 
Uh, fortunately, that I knew pretty well, just being a fan. I, I don't know what I would have done if I had to read like from the beginning of Danny. <laughs> but, <laughs> but yeah, with, with uh, Strangelands, it, it was different because these characters, they had no history. They were, we were starting them fresh. So really our interpretation was the, the first kind of like introduction of Adam and Elle actually to the world. Uh, and we weren't sure whether, you know, this would be an ongoing thing past eight issues. So what we did want to do is to give them a story that would be contained within eight issues, but that potentially they could be brought back in another you know, H1 project um, if in the future that happens. <laughs> so now, now we graduate from graphic novels into prose, which <laughs> yes. we'll spend some time talking about your prose. Um, the, the first time your work was something I encountered was on uh, the podcast LeVar Burton Reads. Where he oh my made, gosh! <laughs> uh, uh, the short story, Skinwalker Fast Talker. Yes. Um, now, before we go to that particular thing, it, it always fascinates me because there are some writers who lament the days of you know when the short story was everywhere and I think uh -huh. a lot of that are writers who don't who have now reached a point where they release their own short story collections yes. because they're so well established guys like Stephen King and Neil Gaiman who have both I've read interviews with both of them where they've said things like that but Yes, those the magazine way that they used to do it doesn't exist. But for you, who's still releasing short fiction, and you mentioned, you know, anthologies coming to you now, how is that market? How does that work for you? Yeah, and, and short fiction was actually the first, my first introduction to being like paid for my work. Um, so I, 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 as a kid, I wrote comics, I wrote short fiction, I wrote my first quote unquote novel when I was in first grade. Uh, it was, uh, let, let's just say I'm glad it didn't get published when I sent it off to a publisher. <laughs> they gave me a very nice rejection. They were very kind. Um, but it was like this 40 page mystery about like a murdered garden. It was very silly. <laughs> but the really in the sci-fi fantasy kind of world, um, publishing short stories is a good way to, to break into this market, uh, especially if you don't have much income beginning with. I was a student when I started submitting my stories to these um, different places. And, and growing up, I read the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. Uh, like I had a monthly subscription. I still, I did not sell those for college. Thank goodness they're <laughs> in the basement right now. It's like a whole massive box full of those magazines. Um, so it, it was something that I, I read a lot and, and in my experience reading a lot kind of helps you write a lot of, at least that's what works for me. I know everyone's different. There's no one right, right way to be a writer. Um, but at the time, that was just when these online submission portals were becoming common. It used to be you had to uh, mail in your story to like the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. But when I really started submitting, um, it, it was in the early days of, of most of these sci-fi fantasy zines to having online submission portals. Um, so that was a way I didn't even have to pay for postage stamp, which is like a great when you're a college student. Uh, and of course, like you get a lot of rejections, but short stories, they have less of a time commitment than writing a whole novel. So I just keep writing and, and improving my craft. And 
uh, eventually Strange Horizons, which is an online, I do suggest p people like speculative fiction, it, it publishes all sorts of things like fantasy, science fiction, but also reviews, um, which I found to be helpful when I'm looking uh, specifically for, for new books or new writers that I've never heard of before, because like they, they also like reach out to international um, science fiction and fantasy. Uh, so that, that was the, the first place that published for me. And from there, I got published in some other places that have the fiction available online for readers for free. Uh, for example, The Dark. Um, I, I was in a special uh, issue of Fantasy Magazine. Uh, and where was Skinwalker Fast Talker first published? Oh, it was, uh, <laughs> what was it called? No shit, there I was. It, this anthology of kind of um, all the stories begin with that phrase, you know, no shit. There I was. <laughs> so, and like, uh, it, it's something where like to today, I, I, I think that there's a, there's a lot of really great places to get your short fiction featured, but personally what I read the most are like anthologies uh, because there's just something about having that, that paper that's easier for me to read. So uh, a lot of times it's like if your story ends up being a year's best of anthology or if like a horror anthology edited by Ellen Datlow. I love those. Um, so that's where I, I personally read a lot of these short fiction. But yeah, I certainly think that there's a lot of places out there. And, and there's also like, um, I, I like one thing I like about anthologies is that if you have a very particular interest, uh, for example, if you just want stories about creepy mermaids, there tends to be an anthology somewhere out there <laughs> with stories about creepy mermaids or like scary dolls and stuff. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I think there, there, something else that I'm noticing is novellas are becoming more, more popular, I guess. Maybe that's just because Neon Hemlock has just published like a new like series of novellas. Uh, but I actually really like that because it's almost like that really nice spot for me where I could read something in one sitting uh, and not finish it too quickly uh, because I'm impatient sometimes and really want to know how these things end uh, before I have to go to sleep because it's 3 a.m. and I'm reading again. But <laughs> what, what was this question again? Oh, yeah, short fiction. Yeah, there, there's a lot out there <laughs> and I'm still writing it. Um, I've got like three, three short fiction projects actually that I, I need to finish by spring. Uh, one of them is, is kind of cool because uh, Skinwalker Fast Talker involves the character Coyote, who's this trickster character. And in this, this new anthology, it's reimagining fairy tales. So I asked whether I could reimagine Puss in Boots as like Coyote in high top sneakers. So it's a return to the trickster Coyote. I think probably in this version, he'll be a little bit younger because it's a young adult novel. Uh, uh, sorry, young adult anthology. But I, I just like writing trickster characters in general. <laughs> yeah. Is, is that one of the Datlows? Because that sounds, I mean, no, no. we have a shell, at least a shelf of those Datlow anthologies. And the more recent ones are all on my wife's Kindle. Because oh my she's gosh. been reading those forever. Oh, they're so good. And it's something where if I want to dependably find an anthology where most of the stories I'd enjoy reading, I look for, for Ellen Datlow editing. <laughs> yes. Um, and so I also just have to ask, since I brought it up, what was it like to be contacted by, I guess, probably LeFar Burton's producer? Like, yeah, LeFar <laughs> Burton wants to read one of your short stories on his oh, podcast. Oh, my gosh. I told my mom immediately. That's, <laughs> it was the kind of thing where I'm lucky that my agent was the one who told me because 
some news I get, uh, I'm just a hundred percent sure that somebody is like messing with me. Like they, they <laughs> pretending to be like LeVar Burden's assistant or something. But fortunately I, I trust my agent. <laughs> so he was the one who told me, um, but yeah, I, I had to tell mom and uh, reading rainbow is when you think back of what you watched as a child on TV, mm-hmm. at least for me, I don't remember everything, but I do remember reading rainbow and just how much it impacted me. Uh, so it was just like, I, I can't, it, it's like a dream. <laughs> I, he, I can look at LeVar Burton, you know, reading rainbow. And then when I'm getting too old for that, I start watching star Trek and I'm into, ne- yes. into next generation. It's like, I grew up with you, man. <laughs> <laughs> that's where my mom uh, knew him from. And that's why I had to tell her because she's like, she's one of those original Trekkies, like, back when the like the first star trek came out she wrote like little fan fictions about captain kirk and you know spock and so she's been a, a lifelong fan of star trek and just like i was like lavar burden is reading my story you know from star trek and she's like oh so uh congratulations on the absolute runaway success of uh Alatsue, your uh debut novel um for those of our listeners who are unfamiliar, um, can you give us the run, uh, the the elevator pitch? Uh, I would usually read it, but it's a full book jacket, so it's a bit oh, longer yes. than the, like one paragraph comic solicitations I would usually read. Yeah, I, I have it down, memorized, and hopefully I won't mess it up. now that I say I have it down, but yeah, Latsui is this young adult fantasy mystery, and it takes place in a version of America that's very similar to the one we live in today. So this is contemporary times; it's not like a historical fantasy. Um, but this uh, version of America is a little bit different uh, because it does incorporate things like fairy rings and vampire curses, and also uh, magic and monsters. And a lot of those monsters are derived from these Lipon stories that I, I heard about when I was growing up. Um, so it, it's kind of cool in that it combines elements from the many different cultures that make up the United States today. And it features a main character named Ellie, uh, who's 17, it's the summertime, and her cousin is murdered uh, in a way that is set up to resemble a car accident. So the authorities, of course, they figure this is a car accident, but Ellie knows better. She knows that her cousin was murdered by this doctor named Abe Allerton, um, but she doesn't know why or how he managed to do this bizarre, you know, killing. Uh, So the book is about her investigating that and Abe Allerton's very sinister connections to this town called Willoughby. And Ellie has the help of her friends and family, but also her ghost dog Kirby, because she has the ability to wake up the ghosts of animals and these include animals that have gone extinct, like woolly mammoths and trilobites. So it's kind of fun to work in all these different prehistoric ghosts into the book. <laughs> but yes, that's a, that's a short pitch. <laughs> uh, the book has been, I, I've seen it popping up on all of these, <laughs> you know, and be- various, you know, best of the year, gift recommendations. Uh, I saw when NPR released their annual book recommender where you put in, you know, what you're looking for. I saw it was on there, which is somewhere I always kind of go and play uh, around with uh, because I need more books because that's something <laughs> I need looking at the two bookcases full of unread books in this room alone. Um, has there been somewhere that it popped up where you were like, wow, I really, this is, this is like, wow, I've made it now. So I've got to say it was time 
magazine because the first email I received uh, notifying me about this, um, the person who notified me was like, oh, Time Magazine listed Latsaway as one of the top 100 fantasy novels of this year. And I was like blown away. And that was that in itself is really cool um, because I've never I never imagined that anything I created would appear in a Time magazine. Um, to me, that was like this unobtainable thing. Uh, but then there was a follow-up email that was like, whoops, I, I mean, the best fantasy novels of all time, not just 2020. I was like, wait a second, um, for real? <laughs> so that's what I, I had to double check that. Uh, it, it's kind of like, like I say, I'm always very suspicious of things that are too good. Um, I, I guess that's just my nature. Like I've never been like scammed yet. But, you know, you're, it's hard when you have the internet. You always have to be suspicious. Um, but it's, it's the kind of thing where, where after it happened, like, it's, it's, been a, it's been a long time and I still can't quite believe it. I, I saw some Time magazines being sold, like, in this random kind of, like, street side place and, and bought, like, four copies for my mom just to have those. <laughs> um, so I'd say that's, that's the, the biggest thing that kind of shocked me. Um, but in terms of this positive response that Alatsui has received, really the best is that there are people who take pictures of Alatsui the book next to their puppies and then their dogs and also their cats. I've gotten a lot of cat cat pictures, even though tragically I forgot to put cats in Alatsui. I put like every other animal, but no cats. So <laughs> I'm so sorry. So they're, they're just trying to influence you for the next novel. That's what well, that is. I, cat I also just can't imagine cat ghosts are very responsive. Mm -mm. I mean, oh. knowing my cat, <laughs> alive, she's barely, you know, answers. The, <laughs> if she has a whole afterlife to wander around in. She's like, oh, my gosh. It's like I, I figure every time like on Ghost Hunters or something when something's just knocked off of like a shelf like that's a cat ghost right there <laughs> doing its supernatural stuff. But yeah, I promised my editor who's a cat lover that the next book would include, you know, I said at least four cats, but there is one cat that plays an important role in the story. And that's because I want to show the world that I also love cats. <laughs> you don't have to choose between cats and dogs. <laughs> But yeah, that that so those photos I think have been some of my favorite things to to come out with this this really positive like reception to Alatsue. I have to say I appreciate it from you know librarians and readers and really publishing industry like just it it was unexpected because this has been a very difficult year uh, and and considering that it's just very appreciated that the debut experience has been so positive. Was YA the, it's not really a genre, I, the, the age group, whatever, that you'd always sort of intended to work in, or did it just sort of come naturally for this story? It's a, it's a little bit of both, but I, I actually, I started Alatsaway as an adult book, um, but I really couldn't get past the first, like, 15,000 words. It was just something wasn't working out with uh, Ellie's voice as an adult. And then I realized that she had to be a teenager, so she would have to like basically face off not against, you know, just this evil doctor in a creepy town, but also against like these barriers that a teenager might have doing an investigation. Where, for example, she has to ask for permission to drive to a library in another town. It's like an adult doesn't have to do that; they could just go there. Um, so I, I think it's it's definitely a lots away in that that kind of 
indescribable level of subconscious writing. It, it really was telling me that this book could not be written without the perspective of a teenager leading it. Uh, but, but that said, I did want to write young adult novels as part of my career. Actually, my plan is to do both young adult and adults. So we'll see how that works out. Um, my next book is young adult. Uh, but it is because growing up, the books I read as a teenager really saved me. <laughs> uh, I was like, it's hard to believe now because I talk like I, I have no like problem like meeting new people and chatting. And, but between sixth grade and college, I actually didn't have any friends because I was one of those really shy um, kind of didn't have a lot of confidence uh, kids who moved a lot. So after my move from Iowa to Vermont, there was a lot of like bullying and hostility and that just kind of shut me down in terms of making new friends. Uh, but I had these books that I would read and I'd go to the library science fiction fantasy section and just like read everything there. Um, so now I kind of want to create something that would provide the same escape and joy to, you know, other, you know, teenagers that the writers that I read provided for me. Uh, but yeah, it, it's, yeah, thinking about high school, it's never easy. <laughs> So much of the novel is about oral tradition mm -hmm. with the stories of sixth grade, Ellie's great, 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 great grandmother <laughs> um, being told to her by her mother, Vivian. Yes. Uh, I know that, you know, my family had some of those type of legendary stories, not quite that many generations back, but still, um, do is that something that you have in your family, those sort of stories that are the foundations of your family. Oh yes, absolutely. And a lot of these stories that make their way into the book through the adventures of sixth grade uh, are actually directly influenced by the stories that my mother told me that were told to her by family, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, because the Lipan Apache people, like many indigenous peoples have this very strong oral tradition. Uh, and these stories include stories of this water monster that lived around the Rio Grande region. And there's actually several of these and the water monster itself uh, takes different forms, but in all of these stories, it drags people and horses uh, underwater and kills them. So I then incorporated this story that kind of <laughs> informed my childhood and gave me something to be afraid of near the water and, and put it in a latsway with my own spin on it. Uh, it was essentially me wondering how something could you know, compel a person who perhaps knew better to get close enough to the water to drown. Um, so in Alatsui, of course, this monster has this, this almost like human, human-like face on the back of its head and it like calls out like, help me, help me. Uh, so that will get people to come close and, and then it like grabs them. Uh, but, but things like Coyote, who <laughs> appears also in Alatsui in a very, very small way, but uh, it was fun writing that. Of course, coyote stories are probably the most common that I heard growing up uh, because those are stories that are often extremely entertaining. Uh, sometimes they're vulgar. Th those I, I actually heard when I was older. Like I didn't hear the vulgar ones when I was a child, uh, but often coyote gets into a lot of trouble and he's very amusing. And uh, I'd say the majority of the stories that I, that I would hear from my mother as a child were about coyote. So it was really cool to put him as, as a character into the book and I do always have to say that my version that I 
So essentially the version of Coyote that I was, you know, grew up with is, is very Lipon specific. Um, my fiance is Navajo and, and actually their coyote is, is a lot more sinister than ours. Uh, so I'm, I'm not sure that, that if I grew up hearing those stories, I would be influenced in the same way. Um, but yeah, our, our coyote is actually, sometimes he does good. Uh, of course, it has to be the right situation. He really has to be feeling like it at the time, but sometimes occasionally he's maybe a hero, which is something I like about him. I always like tricksters who can maybe be persuaded to do good, you know, in, in the right conditions. <laughs> Someone someday is going to write a, a story that teams up Coyote, Anansi, and Loki on oh. a road trip, and it'll just be insane. Oh, that would beat each other, though. Like, of course, yes. <laughs> yes, but that would, I think, be the fun. Each of them trying to outdo the other. <laughs> it's like maybe like an amazing race, except with those three competing against each other. <laughs> And Puck. Mm -hmm. Oh, that would be so cool. <laughs> yeah, gotta, you gotta, gotta, gotta get you know the fair folk in there. Yeah. Um, I loved the format of the mystery at the center of the book. That it's not a whodunit because you know that by the end of chapter two, maybe mm -hmm. three. Um, but it's more of the why, how done it. Why did you decide to go that way versus making it a pure you know whodunit type mystery? I wonder if, so Columbo, I, I don't know how many people are familiar with Columbo. Uh, Columbo makes Matt very happy. I have talked about <laughs> yes. Columbo on this podcast on <laughs> okay. many an occasion. Oral uh, speaking, sitting with my great aunt, watching Columbo when I was a little kid. Oh, yeah. Gotta say that I've watched a lot of mystery series on TV, and Columbo is still my favorite, which is, you know, surprising. Like, but there are some episodes, I, I don't want to go into them because then I'd be talking forever. But I do think that that format really, maybe even subconsciously influenced me when I tried to think of the mystery of Alatsue, uh, just because it's so, it's such a fun take on what's usually a whodunit. Instead, it's a howdunit. Uh, and that almost, it's almost disarming uh, because suddenly these tropes that you expect in mysteries are just like completely gone. Now it's like the detective almost matching their wits against a known adversary from the beginning. Um, and so that's something I like how in, in Columbo, like he, he always comes across as like this very like disarming, like amiable, friendly guy and, and, and causes these these villains to almost underestimate him and how how genius he really is and how much danger they're in and that's almost like uh ellie and abe allerton abe allerton is like this this doctor you know he's he has he's a very like he's well educated he's wealthy he has the support of a whole town so he definitely underestimates this teenage girl who is like i'm gonna avenge my cousin uh, but yeah there might be some parallels between that and columbo i gotta say <laughs> We'll stick to Matt's cultural TV touchstones for a second. Uh, are you at all familiar with the 90s cartoon Gargoyles? Uh, oh, my gosh. So my friends love that. But that's one of those cartoons that I did not watch, even though I probably could have and should have. <laughs> only because it's the one place, one of the few places I could think of where indigenous characters and the fair folk also intersect. So I was like, I wonder if this is just, you know, I mean, there, if there was anything there, 
I mean, now I just really want to watch it. Like after this podcast, I'm sure there's some episodes online. <laughs> Disney Plus, it, all right, the whole series. All right, I do. I do have access to Disney Plus right now, so <laughs> it, it, it 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 has world mythology and Shakespeare mixed together. It was sort of a perfect heady mix for a dorky <laughs> teenage Matt. Oh, man. uh, <laughs> uh, on top of everything else, it's mentioned in a very casual and matter-of-fact manner in the book that Ellie is asexual. Mm -hmm. It's something that you didn't necessarily need to call out, but because there's no romantic subplot to the book, but you mentioned it in a very matter-of-fact way, and for another, not terribly represent, terribly, Mm -hmm. largely or often well-represented group, but, you know, I'm just curious where that choice came from for you writing the character. It's the kind of thing, so um, I'm actually asexual, and I'm engaged to another asexual native, so (laughs) that's not something I realize I say much. I feel like I should probably be more vocal about that, just because, like you mentioned, there's not a lot of representation out there, Um, and it's something too, where I noticed for young adult novels, when there is an asexual main character, it tends to be a book focusing on how this asexuality, like they might be coming to terms with it or how it influences, maybe they want to date. And so I, I, I thought it would be really cool to write a fantasy book where the main character is asexual, but really she doesn't struggle with it. And it's not the main focus of the plot. It's just something that she happens to be. Uh, and it was kind of difficult because there's this kind of stereotype that teenagers only want to read about if there's romance or sex in a book. And of course, that's not giving teenagers a lot of credit. Like teenagers like to read about all sorts of things, just just like any other age group. Um, but I was advised before even I, I started sending this book off for agents Uh, I was advised that if I was going to have an asexual main character and there'd be no romance, I should write middle grade. Um, And I was like, no, I think I'm going to, I'm going to stick to, (laughs) I'm going to stick to uh, YA. And and that's proven to be a good choice um, because as I've seen, not only is the reception positive, but I have had young readers who are asexual too reach out to me and say, it was so cool to have this arrow ace character um, who is allowed to do like heroic things uh, and, and not really suffer because she is asexual. Uh, so so that, that's definitely one reason. And also I, I write what I know. <laughs> um, I remember one time I had to write a kiss for a book, like a really romantic one. And I had to ask somebody for help. I was like, what is this thing people do? <laughs> but, <laughs> um, so yeah, it's just easier for me, honestly. <laughs> there you go. Uh, uh, is your next novel, uh, A Snake Falls to Earth, set in the same world as Alatsue? Yeah, this one's actually a, a totally different world, and it's actually two totally different worlds. Uh, it's one of those books that spans both the near future Earth and this world of spirits and monsters. Um, so it's a, a cottonmouth kid. So the the way this world of spirit and monsters works is is it's you know completely invented by me but of course it's also influenced by a lot of things i grew up with and part of that is the prominence of animal people in our stories which are these these people who are they're animals but sometimes they take an animal form sometimes they take a more humanish form uh so the spirits who occupy this world are like that and and it happens to follow the adventures of this this cottonmouth uh 
I guess he he's a teenager, but he considers himself like all grown up by by the time this book starts. Because you know snakes, they they just they just leave the leave the nest and they're good. Um, but it's about him trying to save his friend, and he has to go to Earth in order to do that. And he actually teams up with this human who also wants to save her grandma. Uh, so it's kind of one of those two world adventures. But unfortunately, it does not take place in Latsoe's universe. Maybe in the multiverse that Latsoe's. <laughs> <laughs> do you have plans for other stories of ellie or in that world it was just such a, a world so rich with detail i want more oh thank you <laughs> and actually yeah there's so much world building that didn't end up going into the book because like originally i was like i'm gonna make this a trilogy but it was so self-contained as one book uh, that it actually sold as just a single book thing. So, you know, if the publishers ever think that it would be worth putting out another one, I had ideas. <laughs> it's going to go into like exactly how this fairy, this extradential fairy magic might be affecting the world. Because that's something that only touched upon a little bit in the first book, but that could actually have a serious influence uh, and things like that, like trying to, I was thinking in some of the later's book, it would be cool if the, the villain could be um, a type of villain that is directly from the stories that I learned as a child. So I'd say like a Lipon monster this time instead of a, a scary doctor. Uh, but, you know, there's ideas. <laughs> it's all depending on whether, they, whether there's enough interest to bring it back, though. <laughs> Uh, so, a uh, quick Twitter question. Uh, our Xavier Files colleague and uh, WMQ&A Patreon supporter, Robert Secundus, asks, uh, what, are, what are your favorite works of fiction that bring elements of folklore into our world? I actually saw that question earlier and thought about it, like, really hard all afternoon. Um, and Yeah, came to the decision. Uh, the series, What We Do in the Shadows, uh, which is a lot of vampire folklore, uh, but it's it's interwoven like in such like a funny, creative way, uh, also with the reality TV format. I have to say that's my favorite thing. And and being a fan of horror, also, there there's little like tributes in these episodes to mm -hmm. not just vampire horror, but like I think the Duke appears in one of them or something, like a party, or is it his brother? I forget. <laughs> Yeah, that's got to be my favorite, and anyone who likes vampire folklore and really funny TV shows should check it out. <laughs> I, I still need to watch that. That's, that's my gargoyles. That's, that's the thing that I know I will enjoy if, when I finally sit down and watch it. I need to get further into it. I've started it, loved it, but time, there, there's yeah. just not enough time in the... the no, I definitely feel that. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, you did your undergraduate work at Princeton. Mm -hmm. Did you ever wander across the street to the McCarter Theater Center to see anything? I did. Um, that Wait a second. Am I thinking right? I might have. I can't remember anymore. Is, I is worked that... in Princeton at the McCarter for 13 years. So no I'm way. always, oh yeah, I am well and very familiar huh. with Princeton. My D&D &D group still has <laughs> one of the managers of small world uh -huh. one of the managers of the princeton record exchange and one of the it guys for the university oh plus me my wife and a couple of scientists uh we're, we're an odd group <laughs> were you there let's see when did i uh between 2006 and 2010 i worked in print i worked for mccarter from 2002 to 2015 so, okay yes. we overlap i might have seen you there not even yeah. known it <laughs> wandering around yeah yeah i think you would have 
you would have come in right at the one of my closest friends, uh, previous guest of the podcast, David Harris, would have been graduating just as you were coming in because I started working at McCarter in '02 and he came to Princeton right around then because he worked at the comic book shop that I did when he was in high school and I was in college. <laughs> so yeah, but yeah, you, we, we, we did cross over that entire time. I'm just, I'm always curious because we always, it was always a struggle to get the undergrads to, to, you know, even wander one block off campus. <laughs> no, I know I definitely passed there a lot of times and trying to, I might've seen actually shows in there, but I have a terrible memory. <laughs> Um, so we, we've talked a lot about your writing, but you know, you also have a PhD in oceanography. Um, so listeners, let that be a lesson to you that all binaries are bullshit, but, uh, <laughs> we, uh, which came first, uh, you know, your interest in the sciences or your interest in the, the humanities? Uh, it was, it was definitely the kind of thing where when I went in as an undergrad at Princeton, I thought I was going to be an English major with a focus in writing. So that was my, that was my goal. Uh, and I love telling this story because uh, I applied to the Princeton Creative Writing Program uh, as a freshman and they rejected me. And I was like, oh no, well, I'll just try again next semester. So I tried again that semester and they rejected me. And I realized that uh, I ran out of time to to focus on writing. There's like this creative writing certificate program. I can't, can't remember what it was called, but it really, if I was to continue doing my English major, I wouldn't be able to write like a novel for my thesis. Uh, and around that time, I went to an oceanography course, uh, just an intro to oceanography, very basic, uh, at what was then known as Guillaume Hall. Uh, and that was my first introduction to oceanography probably ever, because like I lived in a lot of landlocked areas, even in, in Texas. I was in Texarkana, straddling the border of Arkansas and Texas. So this was my first real experience, kind of learning how cool the ocean was. And I wonder if I'd learned that earlier, if I'd taken like a high school course that told me about like the tides and plankton and, you know, glaciers and, and intertidal, it's, it's just, if I knew all that earlier, maybe I would have gone in as an undergraduate wanting to be an oceanographer already. Uh, so I'm actually very grateful for the rejections. Uh, and I like to tell that as a story that sometimes rejections can lead to better things because um, in addition to having this background in oceanography, I continued writing and eventually found a way to get published. Uh, but yeah, as a, as a PhD student, I actually studied the genetics of plankton. Uh, so there's these these organisms, uh, Karenia brevis, a species of, of phytoplankton that causes red tides in the Gulf of Mexico. And they make a neurotoxin um, called brevitoxin that can potentially make people very sick uh, through neurotoxic shellfish poisoning. And, and what happens is during red tides, which occur you know, almost every year off the coast of Florida, you know, every other year, maybe give or take off the coast of Texas, uh, shellfish actually filter feed so they will accumulate these toxins from this red tide. And then if people then eat the shellfish, that'll make the people get flu-like symptoms usually, uh, but it can be potentially even worse. Uh, so my, my goal as a PhD student was to try to understand the transcriptomes or the expressed genes of these phytoplankton and maybe help elucidate why they make brevitoxin to begin with, because that 
especially when I was getting my PhD, was a really big question among phytoplankton scientists. Um, so that was really cool because it kind of allowed me not just to study like the ocean, but also to study genetics and, and get like a really cool background in transcriptome assembly. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, you, you, towards the end of the show, we have a regular bit here we like to call Pet Corner. Yay! Uh, <laughs> we talk to creators about their pets. And since Kirby the dog was a big part of the book, I was not surprised to see you have a dog, Rosie. Yeah. Tell us about Rosie. <laughs> Rosie. So Rosie is my little Chihuahua rat terrier mix uh, who I adopted when I was a grad student down in College Station, Texas. I went to Texas A&M. And there was, I believe it's called Long Way Home. It's this, uh, it's essentially a no-kill type shelter. Uh, and that's where I found Rosie. And, you know, she started out like a very anxious, difficult dog. She was the type of dog that had behavioral issues because she probably was kept in a cage, like for most of her early life. So it was, it was, it was like a, a hard mode adoption, but I also, she, she's just such a charming little, little girl. Like when she's not afraid, when she's not anxious, she just like the sweetest, warmest little chihuahua. Like if anyone starts crying around here, she'll try to go up and like lick your cheek. Um, so she's just a sweetheart and she's actually come a long way. She's eight years old now. Uh, mellowed out she knows how to sit and shake and and she's right now because it's winter kind of sitting on a heated blanket or or being in front of a space heater when we have it on just constantly um but i also have my fiance has two german shepherds uh valeria and conan and i don't know if anyone knows like the history of, of conan the barbarian but valeria was chosen for a reason uh there are also adoptions and we also have a one-eyed hamster and that is from, I mentioned my fiance veterinarian. Uh, sometimes animals are turned over when they have an issue that their owner can't, you know, they don't really want to pay for. And mm -hmm. with this, for some reason, this little hamster's eye was messed up, but it would have been a very simple fix. You just do surgery, take the eye out, the hamster would survive. So instead of putting it down, T just did the surgery and adopted it. So we have this, she's the smartest hamster I've ever owned. Um, she knows how to find a way to get out of her like running ball and, and out of her cage. So we always have to keep an eye on her, uh, but I love her so much. Her name's Hamtaro. <laughs> Yeah, there's another reason to wait a little while before cat. If the yeah, unless you have my cat, who the bunny used to headbutt the cat, oh. and the cat would just be confused. <laughs> Bess is not bright. Oh, sweet thing though. Oh, oh, she, yeah. Oh, very sweet. <laughs> Dumb as a stump. One really cool thing is there's a room of cats at the at the vet practice, um, and. One Halloween, they separated all the black cats and got them all in the same room because they didn't want people to adopt them just on a whim because it's black cat oh, Halloween. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I had the privilege of going in there and just like getting all the black cats to climb all over me. <laughs> it's probably the best memory I have. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So, so now the question that seems to stump our guests every time we ask it, uh -oh. even though it's not intended as a stumper. What are you reading right now? Oh, 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 where is it? Where is it? Into the Drowning Deep. Yes, it's a book about deep sea mermaids. And it's uh, so I decided to do like a monster 
kind of like a monster winter. So all the books I'm reading are about monsters. And I just read Devolution, which is about Bigfoots. I moved on to Into the Drowning Deep about mermaids from the Mariana Trench. Mm -hmm. And so far, like the main character is a scientist who's into like sonar data. So that's totally my thing. <laughs> and the, the deep sea mermaids are murderous, it seems. Uh, so I, I've only gotten like the first, I've only gotten like one third way through the book. So I don't know how it ends, but so far, very much recommend. Awesome. Um, well, Darcy, this is this has uh, been great. It's been it's been an hour. Uh, as we're wrapping up, how can people uh, follow you and keep on uh, keep up with your work? Oh yes, um, in terms of social media, I'm most active on Twitter at Shining Comic, uh, and I'm trying to get into Instagram at Doctor Period Little Badger, like all one word. Uh, but also, my blog has a bibliography that I try to update every few months or so <laughs> so uh hopefully find me there and and yeah twitter is interesting but most of my posts are about like my work or i put up like selfies or beadwork um so <laughs> that's that's pretty much all the content there so if you want i just did a a good etama like i i beaded him so if oh. anyone wants to see that it's on twitter right now that's the thing you were asking for yellow beads for Yes, and uh, the thing is, I've decided to make many Gudetamas uh, because I want to do poses where, like, he's like lying on the on the egg white, or a pose where he's like little little butt. <laughs> I think that would be cute. <laughs> he's known for that. Um, so yeah, it's gonna be like a year long project of doing as many of these as I can before my hands fall off, probably. <laughs> Hey, listen, whatever, whatever any of us need to do to get through this winter. <laughs> yes, this has been the most exciting part of, my, of, of the winter has been beating for me. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Darcy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. It was great to chat with both of you. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A and WMQ Comics are now part of the Xavier Files media empire meaning you can find all our great comics coverage, along with some of the best X-Men and Marvel criticism around, at XavierFiles.com. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at XavierFiles.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a customized bonus reading column written by Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones and Match Club Podcasts, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's Spider-Woman series, and Lan M from Lan's Vids. You can follow WMQ Comics and Xavier Files on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. And until next week, in the immortal words of Abraham Lincoln, be excellent to each other. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.